people will go to incredible lengths and great expense in the process to seek and find what they consider valuable. So do you uh, know these two guys? You know them? They've spent millions of dollars, their own money, TV revenues, investors' money, going after what they consider valuable. Uh, people have been looking on Oak Island in Nova Scotia since 1795. Uh, they've been digging and hunting for something very, very valuable. The legend behind uh, the curse of Oak Island is seven people are going to have to die looking for the treasure before it actually be found. I don't know where we are in those seven, how many have died so far. Some of you watch the TV show. Uh, probably, what's there that's so valuable? People say uh, it's pirate treasure. Some say it's Navy treasure. Some say Queen Marie Antoinette of France. She hid her crown jewels there. Uh, some say there are actually papers from Francis Bacon explaining he was William Shakespeare uh, that are there. Uh, all kinds of theories, and some say it's just a plain old sinkhole. They have spent millions. People will go to incredible lengths and spare no expense in the process to go after what they consider valuable. The Bible describes a group of people. We've just seen them in the drama. They went to incredible lengths and great expense to go after what they considered valuable. What they considered deserving of their time and their gifts and their energy and their worship. There's a group who went searching for Jesus. We know them as the wise men or the magi. We've just seen two of them. Uh, today we wrap up our series, In Those Days. We've been looking at what the Bible says about the arrival of Jesus as Messiah and Savior. I love the phrases we've been using the last weeks. Uh, Sam said, Yahweh was breaking in into our world. I think Kip used the phrase that God was entering in. We've been looking at Luke chapter 2, but this morning we shift to the other birth narrative, and it's Matthew chapter 2. So would you grab your Bible, or one in front of you in the, in the hymnal rack there, and open up to Matthew chapter 2. God is breaking in. As we go to Matthew 2, we are fast-forwarding at least months and likely as much as two years from what took place when Jesus was born, Luke chapter 2, to what takes place now in Matthew chapter 2, nearly two years has elapsed. Remember, what took Joseph and pregnant Mary down to Bethlehem was the census. And the census was not just go fill out some papers and go back home. It was you relocate. It was a multi-year event in the Roman Empire. And so Joseph, Mary, and now the child have relocated to their ancestral home, Bethlehem. And uh, based on the timing and what Herod does later in the passage this morning, in Matthew 2, I think Jesus was a toddler now. The toddler king. Uh, and I want to hit the pause button and say thank you. For those who are working in the nursery... Thank you, Jennifer, for leading the team. Thank you. 
For those of you who are on the early childhood hallway and helping pour into our toddlers and all their energy and tears and energy, uh, thank you. Thank you for what you do uh, with them. Uh, you are needed. Uh, and most of the church family probably is in where we have more ministry happening on that hallway than we have people to staff. So right now our ministry is like ENL and Moms Connection. They're trying to figure out what to do because they need more help with the toddlers and the babies. So if you've been waiting for strategic ministry, here it is, pouring into the little ones. And Janelle or Jennifer would love to hear from you. Uh, there really is a need there. Uh, and so it just seemed appropriate as we're talking about toddler Jesus to talk about thanking those of you who are pouring into our church's toddlers. Uh, the visit of the Magi is recorded only by Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, we get it only in Matthew. Matthew's writing to Jewish people, and he's talking about Jesus as king. And so the visit of these wise men fits right into the, the proof, the demonstrations of Jesus' kingship. Matthew chapter 2 describes the response of four people or groups of people to Jesus. Herod, the people of Jerusalem, uh, the religious leaders of the day, the, the rulers of the day, and these wise men. The responses of four to Jesus. Uh, it starts with the seeking of the king. So we're at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, first marker of, well, when is this taking place? After Jesus was born. Second marker, during the time of King Herod, Every Jewish reader, you said the name King Herod and things popped into their mind. Images. They knew King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, or as it arose, and have come to worship him. This is after Jesus was born. How long after? The timing is up to two years because when we get to verses 13 to 18, Herod decides to have slaughtered all the children, all the baby boys, two years old and under. Based on when did the star first appear and how old, likely, is this new king of the Jews that Herod wants to get rid of. So up to two years have passed. When they heard during the time of King Herod, they all knew. We know Herod died in 4 B.C. So that puts Jesus' birth at late 5 or early 4 B.C. Yes, the calendar isn't right when it flips over from B.C. to A.D. Uh, 4 B.C. We know a lot about Herod because a lot has been written about him. Wealthy, amazing administrator, intensely loyal, politically gifted, clever enough to be able to stay alive politically as the winds shift in Rome. And you go from emperor to emperor. He was clever enough to stay in power. We know he loved power. We know he inflicted incredibly heavy taxes upon the people. And we know that he resented that the Jewish people never really accepted him. They considered him an outsider. He was a half-breed, half-Edomite, half-Jewish. They considered him a puppet of Rome. 
We know that at this time, magi came from the east. All kinds of traditions. What do we know about the magi? You've got a nativity set at home, I'm sure, that has some, uh, some wise men. Uh, by 225, we had the tradition that they were kings. So more than two centuries after Jesus. Then we get the tradition that uh, there were three of them, based on they brought three gifts. Uh, then we get the tradition of their names. This is centuries after Jesus. We learn their names, Melchon, Balthazar, and Gaspar. Uh, and eventually, we get the tradition of uh, where their bodies went when they died, uh, because their bones were put in a big reliquary in a cathedral in Germany. Really? So if you want to go see the wise men, that's where you want to go vacation. Uh, all those are traditions, no historical basis for them. What do we know from history? We know there was a class of people, scholarly class, priestly class, that studied astronomy and astrology. They studied uh, religion, sorcery, what we call today the occult. We know that there was a class centuries before Jesus, uh, this scholarly class in Persia, uh, Medo-Persia, what became Persia. We know that it spread to Babylonia. Um, we know that they were considered a priestly class. And when it says their journey, they have come from the east. Well, how far? They come from Persia or from Babylonia? Either way, they travel more than a thousand miles to come worship this new king. A thousand miles. We don't know how many there were. We don't know how they dressed. We don't know their names, their later history, or their place of burial. All the things we might be curious about, they aren't in the text. All that's in the text, what Matthew wants to emphasize is they traveled a long way to worship Jesus. That's what he wants his readers and us to hear. These magi, whoever they were, wherever they came from, they came to worship Jesus. And they had a question. To be able to worship him, they've got to find him. So their question is in verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? How did they know that a new sign in the sky was connected to a, a new king of the Jews? Nobody knows. Best theory is what I think is what you saw in the drama a few minutes ago. We know that Daniel, when the exile happened uh, centuries before Jesus, we know that the Israelites that were taken off into Babylonia, among them the educated ones were taken, it included Daniel and his friends, and we know they were put in the scholarly class in Babylonia. Is it possible that over the centuries what uh, they shared with the rest of the wise men of the day was passed down century by century and there were scrolls around that uh, the current at the time of Jesus' wise men go, oh, wait a minute, remember? There was, there was going to be a new king, a great king. And, and so they connected it somehow to this uh, new sign in the sky. They say in verse 2, we saw his star in the east, or as it arose, something new in the sky that they connected with this new king. And their intention was to come and worship him. 
Uh, nobody knows what the new star was. Theories are a, a nova, a supernova, an alignment of the planets. And this goes back centuries and centuries and centuries trying to figure it out. I think we've asked Don DeYoung this question here before. He said, we, we don't know. Uh, best answer is God put something or allowed something in the sky that would give direction to these who were going to seek the new king. The purpose of this sign in the heavens is to guide these magi to Jesus. They correctly interpreted that it had to do with the birth of the Messiah, the king of the Jews. We just don't know exactly how they knew. Think uh, traveling that far, a thousand miles, chasing something that you see that's different in the sky is strange. Remember what we did last year? Remember the solar eclipse? Remember people that traveled thousands of miles to get into the 100% shadow zone for the solar eclipse? I think the drive or the, the thought might be the same. They'd come a long distance in order to worship this newborn king, but to worship him, they had to find him. So they go to the capital and they ask for directions in Jerusalem. And we see then four responses. They're seeking the king, and there are four different responses to this toddler king Jesus. Responses that aren't very different from responses to Jesus now. Uh, verse 3 is King Herod's response. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Word means alarmed, agitated, and all Jerusalem with him. When he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quote from Micah chapter 5, written 700 years before Jesus. <coughs> but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler. And then they refer to 1 Samuel 5, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's an allusion to the shepherd means the leader, means the great king. These priests and teachers of the law knew what was in the law. What's Herod's response? Herod's response is Jesus is a threat. Uh, Herod is an interesting guy um, from Edom. Edom was enemies with Israel for centuries. Uh, one of the times that they were fighting, Herod's hometown is captured by the Israelites, forcibly converted to Judaism. So everybody from that town is nominally Jewish. Herod followed suit. He was a political ruler far more than he was a spiritual ruler. Herod's a skilled political schemer. He's known as a great builder. The temple that existed in Jesus' day, when uh, they point to it and say, look at this, Jesus, isn't this amazing? That was the temple that Herod had had built. It's referred to as Herod's temple or the second temple. He is cruel. Herod's been called brilliant but brutal. Uh, there's a long line of murders associated with Herod. Uh, you've got one of his wives, two of his sons, a brother-in-law, 
Anyone who's considered a threat to his rule, he has whacked. That's King Herod. Uh, he was a paranoid tyrant. The emperor said of Herod, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. Had quite a reputation. Um, when the Magi show up, Herod's at the end of his life and almost the end of his reign. He's in his last year. He's 69 years old when the Magi show up. And by then, uh, he was obese, uh, sickly. Uh, he, he was a sad sight. But even at that age, when, when the Magi come and ask this question, Herod is still paranoid and worried about who might be a threat to my throne. 69 years old. One person said he governed like a fox, wily, ruled like a tiger, and died like a dog. He, uh, his response is he is alarmed, a threat to the throne. He sees Jesus as a threat. What about the response of the people? Their response is alarm. All we get is this, the, the little phrase at the end of verse 3. And all the people of Jerusalem with him. They're agitated, alarmed, upset. Why? What is it about it that gets them upset? Maybe you know someone uh, who thinks, uh, well, following Jesus, how much is that going to cost me? What do I have to give up? I think the people of Jerusalem were worried about what Jesus, this new king, was going to cost them, what he might cost them. One person said, uh, the people had learned by long and sad experience that there were no limits to the wrath of a thoroughly alarmed Herod. When Herod's ticked, people die. Herod's ticked, who and how many of us are going to get it this time? Jesus might cost us. Uh, the Sanhedrin, their response. Uh, who are the Sanhedrin? It's the group of 70. When it says that Herod called together the teachers and the chief priests there at the beginning of verse 4 to ask them where the Christ was to be born, uh, teachers and priests means he's calling together the ruling body of Israel, 70 of them. This is their Supreme Court, their Senate. He's calling them together and asking them, where is the Messiah to be born? And they know their stuff. They have the head knowledge. The response of these leaders of the day is head knowledge but no seeking. They have the answer. They quote from Micah chapter 5. They knew the prophecies about Messiah's birth. But apparently, uh, there's nothing in the scriptures to say that any of them had ever gone to Bethlehem to check things out in these two years. There's nothing in any other historical record that any of them had bothered to travel the six miles and check out what had been told them. They surely had heard the report of the shepherds from two years earlier. They didn't bother to go look? Check it out? Really? Imagine with me. A comet appears over Washington, D.C., uh, the reports uh, from uh, six miles away that some kind of heavenly army showed up, scared the people to death. 
Word gets back uh, to the U.S. Capitol, and no one from the Senate bothers to go check things out. What? Head knowledge, but no seeking. One person wrote, because the successors of these Jerusalem leaders later executed Jesus, so maybe some of these current Sanhedrin are are alive 30 years from now when they put Jesus to death, or it's their successors. Matthew may be suggesting the line between taking Jesus for granted and crucifying him is very thin. The line between ignoring Jesus, oh, Bethlehem, something happened? The line between ignoring him and crucifying him, really thin. Head knowledge, but no seeking. Uh, Herod has a second meeting with the Magi. There's the first one where he asks, and they give the answers from the Old Testament. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly, a second meeting. Found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He then sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Is that what his intent was? No, by the time we get down to verse 16, 17, and 18, he's asking the time of the star because that sets the chronology. Star appeared, we think the answer they gave was, well, two years ago. And we've come, and that's why in verses 16 and 17 he says, everybody two years old and under, kill them. Kill them. The, the, for Herod, Jesus is a threat for the people. Jesus might cost us. For the Sanhedrin, lots of head knowledge, but no seeking. But for the wise men, for the Magi, joyful worship with gifts. Look at verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east, or as it arose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They took the long way home, geographically, to avoid Herod and his paranoid response. Uh, the star reappears and guides them six miles south. The star goes from north to south, takes them down to Bethlehem, and leads them to the house. They're no longer... Uh, it's a big deal made of uh, the words here, the house, not to a house. The, the star led them to the house. And whatever they were in for the night of the birth, stable, three-room home, he kept the animals in the third room in the back of the house uh, to protect them when you brought them in, uh, they're no longer there. They're in the house. So we have to fix our nativity scene. So uh, I'm going to shatter some things for you this morning. We need a second house. 
Okay, so we have a house. And at that house, uh, we can keep at the nativity, we can keep the shepherds. We can't keep the sheep anymore because we know they were out in the fields being watched by the shepherds. They weren't really in the stable. Okay? Uh, and we can, uh, so we, we got to put them in the fields. Uh, we know the, the wise men weren't there yet with their camels. Uh, shepherds, Joseph, Mary, baby, that's Luke 2. I know it's going to shock you, and it's a little bit too much to remove all of them, so we'll at least leave one animal. Uh, and so now we need, uh, we, we can move Joseph and Mary up here. We've got the camels and we've got the, uh, the magi. They have come. We'll have them ready to knock on the door and bring their gifts. And we can take Joseph and Mary and they're inside the house. I'm going to put them on the, on the roof for right now. And we have toddler Jesus. Okay. So you've you got toddler Jesus that's with them. So you may want to go home today, and if you haven't put all your Christmas stuff away, you may want to, you know, correct things. Okay? You don't have to put them away. Just set up a second scene for it. Okay? Um, so Matthew's painting, the toddler king. And verse 11 is the climax. They come, and they throw themselves down on the ground, however many of them there were, in worship before the toddler king. People go to incredible lengths and spare no expense in the process to seek and to find what they consider valuable. They search for the king, willing to endure a long, hard journey in order to bring their worship. What are the lessons of the Magi? First, we're to be shocked. I think we're to read Matthew chapter 2 and go, what? That you've got pagan stargazers from the East that have so little spiritual background or knowledge. They are making a thousand mile journey to come and give worship while Herod and the, the priests and teachers of the law who have all this spiritual background maybe do nothing? We're to read Matthew 2 and go, Them? giving worship, and the people who are supposed to didn't? What? The lesson of the Magi is to be encouraged, especially for those of us who aren't Jewish. Uh, because God's plan, his people were the Israelites. And this is one of the early incidents in the scriptures, earliest in the New Testament, where you've got non-Jewish. These are are pagans from a far country, Gentiles, non-Jews, who are going to come and offer their worship. God's plan includes not just the Jews. His salvation plan, what his, he has offered, includes not just Jews, and that should make our hearts encouraged and ready to respond and give our worship. The lesson of the Magi is to question ourselves. How about me? If they went to those lengths, that kind of investment and sacrifice to come worship, with all that I know, 
all the background and experience I've been blessed to have here, why do I fall short when I worship? Since pagan stargazers went to such lengths to search for and journey after Jesus, what should be our eagerness to seek him and then worship him? And the good news is that God promises when we seek, we will find. Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Kip said last week, it takes time, effort, and perseverance to seek after Jesus. They invested it. How about us? Time, effort, perseverance. A lot has been said about the gifts brought. They're at the end of verse 11. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. From a early, early tradition was that these were each symbolic, pointing to some truth about the toddler king. Gold. You give gold to a king. He is royalty. Frankincense. You offer incense to a god. He is God come in the flesh. You use myrrh as an ointment or when uh, preparing a body for burial like they did after Jesus died. So myrrh points to human, a death is coming, gold, frankincense, myrrh, a king, God in the flesh, a man who's going to die for our sins, symbolic gifts. So we're starting into 2019 this week. And this passage makes us, makes me ask myself, what's my response to Jesus? I don't want to be like Herod, but I've got echoes of Herod in my heart that are, um, I don't want anyone, God or anyone else, threatening my right to rule me. You got some of that in you? We don't want to be like Herod. We don't want to be like the people of Jerusalem, so worried about what it might cost us that we miss seeking what's most valuable. Does it cost to belong to Jesus? Nope. Faith. Free gift. Salvation as a free gift based on our faith because of his grace. Does it cost to follow Jesus? Sure does. Sure does. But it's a cost that doesn't compare to the value of what he gives us in terms of eternity with him and purpose for life right now. We don't want to be like the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And that's probably the biggest trap for us in our culture, in our church. Lots of head knowledge. I've heard it before. Oh, good Bible teaching. You can turn on the radio and find six Christian radio stations. Lots of head knowledge. But are we seeking? Going after? Going after him? And then the Magi. As we go into 2019, we want to be people who bring joyful worship and bring our gifts to him. Jesus said, 
early in his ministry, Sermon on the Mount. Seek first. Are you a seeker? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All the other things will be added as well. Meaning all the things that you worry about that are part of life. The priority is you seek him first. Since pagan stargazers went to such lengths to search for and journey after Jesus, what should be our eagerness to seek him and then worship him? Would you pray with me? We bring ourselves to you this morning, Father, looking at the example uh, most of us have have known of these wise men since we were little. Uh, remember hearing the stories, seeing it in our nativity sets at home. To think of the sacrifice of the investment causes um, wonder, amazement in our hearts. We come to you this morning looking at our own hearts, wanting to respond to what you've said in your word, what we see in their example. We want to follow suit. We want to be investing, pursuing, giving the time, effort, and perseverance it takes to seek after you. Because you deserve it. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in the name of that King Jesus. Amen.